Good morning and welcome to the Leeward campus of Christ Community. Uh, we're glad you're here on this beautiful day. Hope you're all cheering the Royals on. I guess there's also another game going on in town. And uh, we'll cheer them on too. So glad you're here this morning. On a plane from Portland to Kansas City not too long ago, uh, yes, your introverted pastor here began to talk to the two gentlemen next to me. I was on an aisle. And uh, usually I am uh, focused on other things. And they wanted to talk. There were two brothers who were on their way to Arkansas to see their retired father. And uh, I sort of struck up a conversation. And the younger guy told me he had recently graduated from college and uh, was trying to figure out how he was going to pay off all this debt. He couldn't find a good job. And uh, I looked at him and didn't know exactly what to say. And he said to me, you know, it's really hard out there. I don't know what I'm going to do. As a young boy, I remember hearing my older brother's stereo blasting in the upstairs bedroom uh, of another generation, the cry of a generation through, if you remember, Jackie DeShannon's great song, right? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of. And that was the cry of the generation of my brother who was about 10 years older than me. But the cry here today often is a bit different. The cry is what the world needs now is jobs, sweet jobs. There's only thing there's just too little of. What surprises me in the last few years is as a pastor, I have frequent conversations with people about a lot of subjects, their relational lives, of course, but probably the number one conversation I have is about the economic challenges they face. Not too long ago, the parents of a senior in high school, if you're a parent, you know that college is coming, the senior in high school, things are coming. And they said to me, you know, I want my daughter to go to college, but I don't want her saddled with lots of debt. What are we going to do? Not long ago, I had a conversation with a seasoned citizen uh, in our congregation, and uh, we were chatting. It was a wonderful conversation, and uh, I was anticipating as I said, well, what can I pray for you for? You know, pastors are supposed to do that. Um, And I thought she'd say, you know, my health or, you know, my grandchildren or my children. Uh, But she said this, with historic low interest rates and little return on my savings, pray that I do not outlive my financial resources. I heard that amen. I do not want to be a burden on my family. See, the everyday world in which all of us live is an economic world. And daily we are confronted with the global economic realities that impact all of our lives. We may lose our job in corporate downsizing. We may face persistent unemployment or underemployment. The latest job report and housing starts and consumer confidence sends the markets either up or down. And a small word, I mean just a nudge by Janet Yellen, the Federal Reserve Chair, sends the whole global markets into a different kind of trajectory. I was struck recently reading The Atlantic. It's a wonderful magazine I read often. It was entitled, A World Without Work. This was the article by Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson makes the case that with all the technological change, human work itself is beginning to change again in dramatic ways. Particularly, he highlights, the growth of robotics and technology. He writes this, Robotics exert a slow but continual downward pressure on the value and availability of work. So what will work look like in the future? Where will jobs come from? 
And as I travel, the cry of the heart across our land from so many people today is not just, Tom, tell me my work matters. Tell me there is work for me to do. Can I make a living and pay the bills? How will I pay for college? What about retirement? See, the human need for security never ends. As followers of Jesus, are we missing something important? Particularly when it comes to the sizable economic challenges we face and the contemporary cry of our world. Could the Sunday to Monday gap between our faith and our work be much larger than we care to admit? Have we focused on our own individual work, its fulfillment and our faithfulness in it, and somehow ignored what our work means to others in our city and around the globe? Now, as gospel people, we say the gospel speaks into every nook and cranny of life. But how does our Christian faith inform our thinking, our prayer, our priorities when it comes to the global economy and economic opportunity for others? Is it possible that our lack of thought and engagement in the economic challenges of our world are in part due to an impoverished understanding of Jesus' teaching on the great commandment? Could it be we are missing something very important? This morning we are beginning a new message series, which we have entitled Neighborly Love. And wherever we are in our faith journey, whether we are newer to church or newer to faith, or we've been around a long time, we probably have heard of the text that was read. You know, the great commandment is sort of a, something most of us have heard about. To love God and love our neighbor seems to be at the very heart of our Christian faith. But what does loving our neighbor look like in our daily lives? Is it really about taking soup to our neighbor when they're sick? Or mowing the lawn when they're on vacation. Now, these are good things. But is that what Jesus has in mind? What if neighborly love speaks into the collaborative work we do every day? What if neighborly love fuels the economic flourishing of our increasingly interconnected global world? What if? A closer look at the Gospels reveals Jesus talked more about money, about work, and economics than we could ever imagine. Most of Jesus' parables, in fact, many New Testament scholars have something like 37 of them, speak about agrarian economics of his time. When he preached, Jesus preached in the marketplace. He was surrounded by buyers and sellers in that first century world. And Jesus spent, think of this, the majority of his life on planet Earth learning a carpentry trade and running a small business. Hmm. What if Jesus, in his own way, points us back to that, yes, that economics textbook we had in high school or college? What if the Bible says as much about economic flourishing, friends, as it does about spiritual flourishing? And what if neighborly love is much more important and vast than we have often imagined? The next six weeks, we are going to explore these questions. 
If you brought a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to our text this morning. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. In this text, it flows around two structural realities. Verses 25 to 37 first capture a revealing conversation Jesus has and then a riveting story. And that's going to frame the trajectory of our message this morning. First, a revealing conversation. In verses 25 through 29, the gospel writer Luke allows us a front row seat to listen in on a conversation Jesus had with a lawyer. Now, again, this idea is an Old Testament expert of the law. And you'll notice as you read it, the expert asked Jesus a very interesting question, provocative question, how does one inherit eternal life? And Jesus does what most pastors like me don't do enough. Rather than giving an answer, (laughs) we're good at that, he asks this guy a question back. And you'll notice that he looks at him and says, well, okay, you're the expert. What does the Old Testament say about that? To which the Old Testament expert responds, taking two texts, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, and really answers brilliantly, the great commandment. And Jesus simply tells him, now, okay, you got it. Now go live it out. You'd think that was the end of the conversation, wouldn't you? Not in your life. Luke tips his hand earlier that this guy is here to discredit Jesus. He wants to trap him or trick him. And in verse 29, we get a glimpse into this guy's heart motivation. The problem of his heart is his heart problem. It's a self-righteous heart. And you'll notice he becomes pridefully perturbed because there's this massive gap in his life. And this guy says to Jesus, and I don't know exactly how he said it, but in my imagination, it's not like a question like, tell me, who's my neighbor? It's like, who is my neighbor? Now, rather, again, than giving this guy a pat answer, Jesus tells him a powerful story. And you cannot miss this, that the story answers the question, not only who is my neighbor, it also brings needed insight into the question, how do I love my neighbor? Let's not forget, Jesus is the most brilliant teacher to ever grace this planet. We know this story, or do we? Let's look a little closer. Beginning in verse 30, Jesus tells him a man who was Jewish, most certainly. He's making the long 17-mile trek down what is called the Wadi Kilt. It's the old road of Jericho from Jerusalem to Jericho. And uh, it's a road that I've traveled and hiked, and it's filled with places where it'd be great to rob someone. And sure enough, like pirates or robbers, there were people there that did that. We know that this guy encounters the brazen injustice of thugs, who rob him, beat him, and leave him to die. So the story goes, along comes a religious leader. There are many reasons, perhaps, why this Jewish religious leader uh, priest walks by this guy. But the point is, he just walks by him. Right after him, it seems, at least in the structure, another Jewish leader comes by, a Levite, walks by. Then a Samaritan comes and most likely, this was not a religious Samaritan leader. Most likely, we're quite positive. He was a business leader. He was making his way down to Jericho, which was a center of economic thriving at the time. 
let's not forget culturally, as you enter into this story and put yourself in the story that's part of parables, is that racially and religiously, the Samaritans were looked down by, on by the Jews. So there's something surprising percolating here. Notice, unlike the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan businessman has compassion on this guy. And he crosses all lines of religious and ethnic bigotry and prejudice, and he offers first aid to this guy. But not only that. He interrupts his entire business trip. Not only that. He takes this guy to an inn so he can recover. The surprising hero of the story is a Samaritan businessman, not a Jewish religious leader. So Jesus is beginning to unpack the contrasting message here. The riveting contrast is that Jesus presents to us is compelling. Notice the contrast of religious bigotry and hypocrisy of the Levite and priest contrasted with the Christ-like compassion of the Samaritan businessman. See, the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan all saw the man by the road. That's clear. He's beaten, robbed, left for dead. But only the Samaritan saw him through the eyes of God as a neighbor in need. Now, this entire story pivots on one word. It's in verse 33. It's a very unusual word in the original language. Luke only uses it three times. It's translated in English, compassion. But understanding what is going on here, we need to understand how Luke uses it in another parable just down the road in Luke 15. That is the parable of the prodigal son or sons. And you remember the story, one of the younger, the younger son does the unthinkable, squanders his father's entire estate, goes to a far country. He's desperate. He's economically broke. He's spiritually broke. He comes back to his father finally, right? The prodigal son. And when the father sees the young boy who's at the edge of his rope, spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way, he is bankrupt. He sees his son in need and he runs to him. And this is the same word Jesus uses as the Samaritan seeing the guy by the road. This word has physiological reaction. It's a word of your guts. It's like you feel sick because your emotions are so overwhelming in your heart. It's a gut feeling. This compassion is important. And to connect what's going on here, we need to see how Luke uses this. Because the Samaritan saw this man by the road just like the father saw his son in the prodigal son. And when the father saw the son come home, he lavished, gener- he lavished generosity on him. Remember the ring, the robe? It was a lavishing generosity for his son. And what we have here is Jesus is saying that the Samaritan loved this beaten guy by the road like the father of the prodigal son did. We must not miss this. This idea of compassion is that the Samaritan is looking at the man by the road with a fatherly love. He looks at the stranger through the lens of family. See, neighborly love, properly understood as Jesus teaches it, and he raises the bar way up here is merely an extension of family love, the family of humanity. Now, let's not miss, Jesus is very explicit 
that the Samaritan does even more than offer first aid. That would be enough. More than it's expected in the cultural context. But like the generous father in the parable of the prodigal son, who puts his ring on his son's finger and lavishes shoes on his feet and is generous, this Samaritan businessman pulls out his Visa card, his American Express card, his MasterCard, and he guarantees payment for whatever the robbed and injured man will need in this crisis to care for him and get him back to health. The amount here is several weeks of salary. So in Jesus' story, there is a riveting contrast between the callousness of the religious leaders and, yes, the compassion of the businessman. But what we must not miss that is often missed in this parable is Jesus has another contrast he wants us to see. The contrast is between the economic injustice of the robbers and the economic capacity and generosity of the Samaritan businessman. Embedded in Jesus' parable is this riveting contrast between the economic injustice of the robbers who wrongfully take what is not theirs and the economic goodness of the Samaritan generously giving what is rightfully his. Parallels are deeply embedded in cultural context, and one of the finest Middle East scholars is Kenneth Bailey. And he highlights this brilliantly. He says this parable has seven scenes, and the scenes are centered around resource or economic context. And this is what he writes. In scene one, that's the opening part of the parable, scene seven is the end, okay? In scene one, the robbers take all the man's possession, he writes, and scene seven, the Samaritan pays for the man out of his own resources because the man has nothing. Jesus is telling us something very important in this story, and that is that loving your neighbor, loving my neighbor, is not only about compassion, it is about capacity. Not only Christ-like compassion, but yes, economic capacity. We may even say in this context that Christian compassion requires capacity. Jesus goes out of his way in the story. It's absolutely unnecessary. It's clearly emphasized in the text, if we see it, to describe not only the merciful compassion of the Samaritan, yes, but also the extraordinary economic generosity of the Samaritan. See, truth, grace, and mercy put on economic hands and feet. The question we often miss in this story is this question. How is the Samaritan able to care for his neighbor in need in a moment of crisis? How is he able to help his neighbor get back on his feet again? Well, the answer is compelling in the text. The Samaritan not only had heartfelt compassion, but he had economic capacity to do so. The economic capacity that came from diligent labor, the wise stewardship of his resources within the economic system of his first century that added value to others. So we speak a lot about the gospel around here, as we should. But the gospel compels us and empowers us with neighborly love. The gospel not only transforms our work, but our economic life. This is very important for us to grasp. 
Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, gives us a midrash or a commentary, I think, is right out of this par- parable. He does it in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. After describing what we are in Christ and the glory of the gospel, he goes, okay, now what does this mean? So in Ephesians 4.28, I want you to hear it very carefully. It's on the screen. I'm going to go slow. Paul says, again, for those who have embraced the gospel, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis in the text, the original text even more, all the words for work and hands, hard work, everything, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, your life and mine, but rather let him labor, doing honest work, notice, with his own hands. Now, here in the grammar, is the sense of purpose or result. So that, so that, so that what? So that he may have something to share with what? Anyone in need. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. These are the powerful implications of this text that Paul gives us. What is Paul saying? He's saying, friends, the gospel not only addresses our greatest impoverishment, which is spiritual impoverishment, of course, but the gospel also presses into economic realities and economic impoverishment. God cares about that too. The gospel compels us all to live in such a God-honoring way that we do honest work, that we make an honest profit, and we cultivate, cultivate economic capacity so that we can serve others with their economic needs. The Protestant reformers understood this. They really powerfully emphasized this, that the great commandment was primarily what we did every day Monday in our work, whether we were paid or not paid for it. Martin Luther said this. This is absolutely brilliant, and it's right on. He says, God does not need your good work. <laughs> but then he says this, but our neighbor does. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. A primary way we love our neighbor is to do our work well. And from our work to have the capacity with our own wise stewardship of that to be generous to neighbors in need. See, the best neighbors are the best workers. How can we be generous in caring for our neighbors if we have nothing to be generous with. See, we are all called to be generous with our time, of course, with our talents, of course, but also our treasures. We are all called to be generous with acts of kindness and love and prayers for others. That's part of that generosity of capacity. We are all called to be generous in sharing the gospel with our neighbors, with those at work, at school. Yes, but we are also called to be generous with our financial resources that come from our diligent labor and wise financial management. If we grasp a more clear understanding of the great commandment, we are challenged to better connect Sunday to Monday, not only nurturing compassionate hearts like Jesus, amen, but also growing our economic capacity for our neighbor. True neighborly love requires both compassion and capacity. So how do, we neighbor the sun, how do we narrow the Sunday to Monday gap? Between our faith and our work, yes. But between our work and the economic flourishing of our neighbors, both local and global. 
We have spent much time thinking at Christ Community about my own individual work and stewardship of my work before God, and that's hugely important. But it's time now to think not only about my own individual faithfulness, but what that means for my neighbor and the collective economy that is global. What does that mean? Let me ask this question and give three points of initial application as we launch this series. First, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? Let me suggest three things for all of us to begin thinking about. First, we need to know our neighbor. Who are the neighbors in your life? Those you live by, think with me. Those you go to school with this week. Those you work with. But also think about those who society says is not your neighbor. See, proximity calls for responsibility, sure. But in a globalized world, there is more than geographical proximity. There is human proximity. And for many of us, in one of the most mobile societies on earth in the history of mankind, we are in danger of insularity and isolation from others, even in our own city. Not long ago, my bride Liz and I were down at the Hope Center, which is one of our partners, and working in an under-resourced area. And we took a 40-minute walk down Prospect Avenue. We didn't just drive through it, we walked it. And when you begin to see our neighbors there, the food desert, the economic impoverishment, 45 minutes, there was one business open. One business open. And that was windows that were barred, doors that were barred that sold alcohol and cigarettes at a high price. One of the leaders of Baltimore, urban leaders of Baltimore after the riots, said to the world, what we need most is jobs, sweet jobs. What would it be like to live there? What does it mean for us to love our neighbor even in our own city? Who are the underserved, the under-resourced? Who are those discarded by society? What does it mean to know our neighbor? Secondly, what does it mean to help our neighbor? How much good could the Samaritan have done if he hadn't worked hard on Monday? When you think about helping your neighbor, think first about your work and the value it creates for others, whether that work means you are paid for it or not, because work fundamentally and biblically is not compensation first, it's contribution. And from cradle to grave, all of us are called to contribute to God and to others. The Bible speaks a great deal about our responsibility to care for the poor and vulnerable. But how do we do that? Brian Fickard in his insightful book, When Helping Hurts, is a book I would highly encourage you to read. It'll help you with this series. Uh, it's a brilliant book and it's insightful and important. I encourage you, as one of the main applications this morning is to get this book and read it. But he helps us comprehend the complexities of human impoverishment. And he reminds us that in spite of our best intentions, all the philanthropic efforts can actually hurt the poor instead of helping them. And he writes these words. He says, spending yourself often involves more than giving a handout to a poor person. A handout may very well do more harm than good. What does it mean to love our neighbor? Both the generation of wealth and the stewardship of economic capacity through diligent work needs biblical love. It needs wisdom to guide it. 
You cannot help your neighbor well if you do not understand economics well. Human flourishing and economic flourishing go hand in hand. This is what Jesus teaches. Third, do your work well. Let's not miss that the Samaritan and his neighborly love was important, but so was the innkeeper whose business provided a good service. Let's remember that you and I were created by a working God with work in mind. Six days to one is the design. Work matters. A big part of image bearing of God is to work and to create value in serving others within clearly an imperfect economic system we are all a part of. There is no perfect economic system. Christian work is good work well done, done as an act of worship for the glory of God and the furtherance of the common good. Work is not a solitary enterprise. It is woven into the fabric of human community. What a wonderful contrast. Think about, unlike the thugs of economic injustice that robbed this Jewish man and beat him, the innkeeper worked day in and day out hard, and he maintained a business to serve the needs of others. See, neighborly love is much more about where we work than where we live. The best neighbors are the best workers. I was reminded of this in an email from a wonderful congregate member who is involved with international business at Christ Community. He describes the last 15 years with this talented workforce in India. And he says this, what I have come to realize is that my position of influence puts me in a unique position as a Christian. He says, my workers in India, and he goes on to describe them. They're college educated, desire a good life. Many of them, for the first time, have graduated from college of their generation. Can you imagine that? And he says they're mostly Hindu and Muslim. And then he writes this. During my many visits to India, they've told me that my values seem different from many perceptions they have of Americans. I've been able to share my faith, he writes, and values with a group that is willing to listen. My neighbors in India now have a larger stake in a stable world since they are connected to the world economy. And he wrote, writes, hopefully they see a little of the love of Jesus reflected through me. The best neighbors are the best workers. And we must not miss something else in this parable. The Samaritan businessman not only loved his neighbor with financial generosity, he risked his life for this guy lying by the road. Because if we know the cultural context, we know that there was such hatred and bigotry and prejudice of Jews in that time against Samaritans that this man taking a wounded Jewish man on his donkey or whatever it was to an inn risked his life because it certainly meant hostility toward him. Kenneth Bailey, this Middle East scholar, says it well. It puts it in American context. Listen to this. It's brilliant. He says, think about 1850 in America. Suppose a Native American found a cowboy with two arrows in his back and placed, his, placed the cowboy on his horse and rode into Dodge City. The question is, what kind of reception do you think he would receive? That's the Good Samaritan parable in cultural context. Risky compassion, generous capacity is stunning. Yet this story ultimately points to Jesus himself. Jesus, the ultimate loving Samaritan, would not only risk his life, he would lay it down on the cross for you and me. Because each one of us are the person beaten and left for dead by the road. 
We need the compassion and sacrifice of Jesus as we are helpless and utterly without hope. Jesus had both the compassion and the capacity to rescue us. Jesus is the true good neighbor. And Jesus demonstrated neighborly love through his faithful work in a carpentry shop and his sacrificial atoning work on the cross. The world still needs love, sweet love, but it also needs jobs, sweet jobs. It needs your work of neighborly love. Watch. I'm just a florist. Got a small shop. Nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess, fussing with a bunch of flowers. Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary, someone who really helps people. But I do love flowers. I've always had an act for it. So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. I'm just a florist.